of Beers, Business, and Balls presented by House Enterprise and brought to you by Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to listen to Beers, Business, and Balls and thousands of other podcasts. This is episode 53. I'm Jake and that is Will. We're in the thick of June. It's officially summer. It's raining right now, but that means we're going to have more outdoor beers. We're going to be chilling and drinking in the afternoons, uh, maybe creeping into work. Who knows? Um, I'm excited. You know, we're, we're getting to the thick of July and Will, this is going to be the time where we're going to start going to the beach pools and shit. Um, give me all the IPAs in the world. Yeah, no, I mean, summer is back. The breweries are back, especially with COVID looking to be in the rear view mirror. A lot of places are opening up outside, inside, all around events are coming back. A lot of great opportunity for some craft beer, a lot of great opportunity to watch your sports teams, a lot of great opportunity for crypto to crash yet again. <laughs> again, and I texted you before this. I'm like, you know, we're, we're determining the agenda for this week. And we're like, all right, cool. Let's talk about crypto. And then what did I say to you? I said something like, or is it just, you know, we'll talk about crypto crash 2.0, or is it just a full-blown depression at this point? And yeah, I, you know, can we answer it? That's the age old question. Probably not. And we will get into that with business. Um, again, it's another week of us talking about freaking crypto as it's consumed our lives so greatly. But hey, it's it's we mentioned this months ago. Once it's here, it's here to stay. And it's part of business. It is part of business. It's the new age tech. It's the new age investing. We got to talk about it. It is sadly, very sadly, a part of business in my opinion. But um Loaded show for you today. We have an awesome guest. It is Zachary Stort Pontier. If that name sounds familiar, uh, it's probably because you watch a lot of HBO. He's an award-winning film editor. He's done films like Catfish, The Jinx. He's the editor of Crime Town, one of our favorite podcasts. And he also won an Emmy. I mean, this guy is really cool. He's got a lot of good stories. Um, excited to have the chance to sit down with Zach as the show goes on. Um, and, and finally, this is one that we've been waiting on for quite a bit. We had to schedule it back and forth. And finally on the books, um, you know, excited to talk to Zach in episode 53 this week. Let's kick it off with some beer. As we mentioned, um, what a time to be alive. You know, we're recording this on, on June, you know, at last week of June, places are open. Who would have thought we, we gush at this like every week, like, oh, we get to sit outside and drink beers. But finally, we're, we're able to really do that. Um, a lot of good places we've hit in the past couple of weeks. Will lead us off with uh, a cheers. Yeah, um, I was torn this week for the first time in a while on what I was going to review. I mean, I have a lot in the back, the, the back stock right now to talk about. But, you know, between Connecticut beers, some New York beers that I had, uh, a bunch of variations from Newport Craft itself, but I'm going to focus on another Rhode Island brewery that just opened up in Providence. Um, you may be familiar with it, Narragansett Brewing Company. They opened up a second location uh, right on the water in Providence. Very cool vibes. You can see the water, perfect parking. Like there's no trouble with that. It's easy to get to. And I went last Tuesday when they had their lobster truck there that place was bumping. For a Tuesday, I had to look down at my phone and be like, oh shit, it's not Friday. It's not Saturday. It was Tuesday at 5 p.m. And it was crazy. It was crazy. And they had a lot to offer. Not only some of their staple beers, there was a lot of new stuff too. 
one thing that really stuck out for me though was their dragon fruit sour. So um, they actually use wine barrels to age this with berries, stone fruits, and they blended a blonde ale with it as well. Very sweet, but not too, you know, not like you don't have to like peck your lips for it because it's not too sour, not too sweet, full of flavor, bright, bright color. Um, I thought it was blended perfectly. You can kind of taste not only the dragon fruit, but some peaches, some black curant, a um, lot of, a lot of great flavors. They had it in cans and draft as well. Four out of five for me. Um, I, I think the summer, you know, we always talk about IPAs and different seasons with stuff and like you can drink sours kind of like all year long. It's more of like pairing with food, but nothing beats a sour beer full of fruit flavor in the summertime on a hot day wash it down alongside my lobster roll. Um, four out of five for me. Great, great stuff. And I'm excited to uh, try a lot of the new things that Narragansett has to offer. Yeah, this has been in the works for quite some time. Narragansett has uh, brewed really all over the place. They did some brewing in New York for a, a long while, to my knowledge. They did it um, in Pawtucket for a bit. Now they've got a nice tap room in Providence, which is obviously what you're referring to. Uh, that is on Tokwatton Street, in Indian Point Park, um, right on the water in Providence is an excellent location. I can't wait to to head over there. I'm jealous that you had a lobster roll. I was yeah, there um, and uh, I guess on top of Narragansett as well. It was the anniversary this week. I can't pull up the year. I believe it's the four, 46 years ago today. Jaws was released, and yeah. if you do remember Jaws, I mean, it's obviously one of the most iconic movies there is. Um, Narragansett beer is heavily featured there heavily featured in the movie. So 46 years ago, perfect timing. Um, I still want to get that my hands on the poster and they always sell out. I might just have to print the poster itself of the Jaws logo, the movie poster with the Narragansett can floating on top. It is so, so cool. Makes for a perfect man cave piece. I'm still looking for it. If you have your eyes on it, let me know. I will pay a pretty penny for it. <laughs> that got me thinking how old Narragansett really is. And it says it on all their cans. I would not have guessed this, but do you want to take a shot at how old they are? Well, it obviously on all of them. And I did not know, but it looks natural. Like it says since blank and it says it right on every can. Since blank. A long time ago. 1905. You're, you're actually close. It's 1890. It's very close. I mean, hey, wow. No shit. <laughs> 189 that's old that's what wow 130 uh, one 131 years old let's fact check you really quick oh you can yeah 100 131 yeah <laughs> all right my math isn't that bad nice that, it's i'll tell you what narragansett is one of those that has has stood the test of time in Rhode Island and well beyond you have college kids drinking, you know, Gansett, the regular old Gansett Pilsner. Yeah. Out at, you know, parties and whatnot. So. And you can definitely see now they are going with the times in terms of like adapting their model and stuff like a brewery that old. It seems to be that they like to, you know, they have their good product. They have their old time fans. They stick to what they got, but it's nice to see them, you know, experiment with double IPAs, sours um whatever it might be that they're still focusing on that newer generation of hey let's be that microbrewery that microcraft but still focus on our big picture as we are narragansett yeah i'm excited i'm really 
excited to go and, and check out the environment and hopefully we can get in front of Mark Hellendrung and a few of the other Narragansett guys. Uh, Absolutely. I will take us to Connecticut, a newer place. Um, if you're familiar with Connecticut beer scene, this should sound familiar to you, but Brewport in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, looked up the story real quick to refresh myself, but really cool stuff from a guy named Jeff Browning um, and Bruce Barrett, who are partners in the business. Uh, Jeff Browning is one of the bigger beer names in Connecticut. Um, was all over the place hospitality wise in New Haven and actually on Long Island too. Where's Garden City? You know where that is? Uh, Nassau County. Nassau County. So way out there. He was at Longshore Brewing Company out there. Okay. Uh, and for the last 15 years, as we talked about, Will, we went to Bar in New Haven a few uh, weeks ago. And Jeff Browning ran the brewery out of Bar for 15 years in New Haven. And then hopped over to this Bruce Barrett guy when he approached him and basically said, hey, I'm buying this building and I want you to come brew for me. Um, he jumped on it. So put a beer program together and now Brewport uh, is slinging out product all throughout Fairfield County, Connecticut and creeping into the other counties in Connecticut too. Uh, they're right off I-95 in Bridgeport. Go check them out. It's really nice. Uh, I went a few weeks ago and got the Summer Ginger Sour. I know we're talking about sour, so I'll hop on here. Um, they kettle soured it, fermented it slowly, reading off the website, to allow all of the gentle nuances to develop and come forward. Um, very hazy, actually. Subtle hints of ginger, fresh lemon, and tropical fruit. It's a nice light sour, 5.4 ABV. I gave it a 375. Really liked drinking it with, uh, I had a flight over there. And Brewport, I think, does really good dark beer. They do a nice brown ale. They do a few other um, amber ales and some, some nut ales, things like that. But this sour, they nailed it. This is the first sour I've had from Brewport. Um, really enjoyed it. And actually more than any other light beer that I've had from Brewport, believe it or not. So 5.4 nice and summery um if you don't like ginger don't have this because you'll hate it but um i'm a big ginger guy so this was just the right amount not overbearing 375 for me yeah nice stuff from brewport i don't know did you have anything from brewport no yeah i had i had that ginger sour and uh it was i mean it was very good you know i expected and it's hard to tell you know when you think of a name it's like okay uh a ginger sour ale like is it going to be more ginger beery is it going to be more soury and i thought it was the perfect blend of both uh that's a beer you can definitely make a craft cocktail with oh yeah you can yeah, throw yeah. some vodka in that you can throw a little lemonade um you can add like a blue moon to it there's a, there's a lot you can do with that to uh you know elevate it even more if you're looking to make like a, a craft cocktail and get boozy with it but i i did enjoy that you know what I think? There's a drink in at the Cheeky Monkey in on the Fenway area, right off Lansdowne Street, and they do their peach beer. No, they do what the hell is it? It's like some light IPA, and they put peach schnapps and a tiny bit of vodka in there, some ice, and they mix it all up. I think if you use that as a base for it, we're cooking with gas. Yeah, no, that definitely. No, I mean, there's a lot you can do with it now that I'm I'm really thinking, especially because like the ginger is so versatile too. You can do vodka you can do gin you can do whiskey like there's a there's a yeah, whole you lot can do of crown you can do crown yeah. with that beer that's yeah. actually nuts and we might be onto something we've really got our thinking caps on anyone want to invest in that idea i know <laughs> well do they have a bar or is it just the brewery 
they have a, it's a restaurant. I mean, so it, that, it's I mean, a full-blown restaurant. They have they serve the bar pizza out of there, and they I think they have a full-blown bar. That's actually a damn good question. They must. I think they do. You're seeing that a lot more too now with breweries. It's like they're not. They are. You know, they're adding more to their their arsenal and more to their menu with not only like the food aspect, but like the beverages as well. I popped into Revival the other day, and. Revival's new location has they sell other seltzers, which is fine, but they also have a full bar behind them and they're starting to make up craft beer cocktails, I, I would guess, to like at, elevate it because they do a lot of fruit beers and those kettle sours and stuff. So, you know, that's a whole whole new realm for breweries to like just bring in more money. So I just looked up the Brewport menu and they don't do craft beer cocktails, but they do cocktails that are all alcohol like you know hard liquor but beer themed like my thai pa um really? and so it and so it goes a yeah okay maybe they do put go all right they do they do because they do a goze with asparo blanco tequila lime juice agave strawberry and basil they're doing that shit that's interesting huh and then they do a sangria with like the Michelizzi's Italian ice. That's a guy right down the road in Bridgeport that does that. I mean, they're, yeah, they're cooking. They're cooking here. This is fun. That's, I mean, that's cool to hear. I think Brewport's on our list uh, to call now. Yeah. People, they're, they know what the hell they're doing. Wow. Nice. All right. That's beer. That's a good beer segment. That was right a good there. beer so, segment. Uh, go to Brewport. Go to Gansett. Those are two very popular places. So make your reservations before you go small. Uh, go support local business. Uh, let's go into our interview now, uh, before we get into business with Zachary Stuart Pontier, again, a warm wedding film editor. Uh, you probably know him from the Jinx and Catfish. And if you watch HBO, you know that name. Um, we, we both were like, oh, that does sound a little familiar. We knew him from Crime Town, of course, one of our favorite podcasts that details Buddy CNC and his rise to fame and the mafia presence in Providence, Rhode Island. And he won an Emmy. Let's not forget for the Jinx. That was a great movie. I've never seen it, but I've heard it's fantastic. So let's hop right into it. Here is Zach Stewart Pontier. All right, everybody with us this week, we have a two-time Emmy winning producer. I think our first Emmy award winner on the podcast in general. So very cool stuff. Producer, filmmaker, journalist, podcaster, uh, Zach Stewart Pontier over in New York City right now. Um, you might be familiar with some of his work at HBO. We're familiar with him from the inception of Crime Town, especially Crime Town Providence. But Zach, first and foremost, how are you? And welcome on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day here in New York City. Sun is shining and uh, excited to be here on the show and talk filmmaking, podcasting and, and Providence with you guys. Beautiful, beautiful. We're very, very happy to have you on. I mean, you've been on our mind for quite some time. You know, we're like, you know, one of our first podcasts when podcasting was still very new was Crime Town Providence. Um, and we're very interested in like the true crime and conspiracy theory and mafia information. So we'll definitely dive into that. But, you know, first and foremost, you know, give us a run through of your life and how you got into the film industry and podcasting as a whole. Sure, sure. Well, I grew up in a really small town in upstate New York uh, called Narrowsburg, New York, which is right on the Delaware River in between New York and Pennsylvania, a tiny little town. And I really, it's very beautiful. And I loved uh, growing up there. Um, and while I was there sort of 
fell into uh, acting and filmmaking through, it's actually a, a kind of a crazy story of a, a con man named Richard Castellano came to my hometown when I was uh, in high school and he had been in Analyze This. You guys remember that movie Analyze This with uh, Billy Crystal and Robert De Niro? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It holds up, I will say. Good movie. Uh, and it's about a, a, a mafioso who goes to see a therapist. And um, the, the mafioso guy is played by Robert De Niro, of course. And Billy Crystal plays his, his therapist. And Richard Castellano, the guy who I knew, played the bodyguard. And there was, I mean, they talk about the power of the movies. I remember meeting him and just be, you know, like you, I watched him in a movie with, with Robert De Niro. And then there he was in my little town. And I just was so sort of thrilled to be around him to um, inspire. I, I kind of was dabbling in being an actor before that, but it really inspired me to like get serious about being an actor. And we ended, I ended up being cast as Richard Castellano's son in a little movie that he was making. Um, and I started working with him at, at his little office on Main Street in Narrowsburg. He, him and his wife started a film festival in this town. All these things came out like, you know, this, this whole saga lasted maybe three years. And the first year and a half was so exciting and fun and all these possibilities. Then it came out that he was um, raising money for this movie and basically ripping off and take, taking it. And so it was this like kind of con where he like had all these seems selling like the Hollywood dream to like these small town uh, residents of, of which I was one of them. And, um, but I, he had a incredibly, so a lot of people in my hometown, like this is like the thing that shouldn't be talked about. But for me, he had like a profound, profoundly positive uh, impact on my life because it was the first movie set I was on. I ended up hanging out with the crew a bunch. I ended up like getting a camera. I ended up starting to make my own movies. And, and, it, and it was this interesting cross section between like, it wasn't really a crime story. I mean, nobody, you know, pe pe people lost money, but nobody, you know, got, it wasn't as intense of a crime story as, as, as you would, you know, nobody got murdered, nobody got, but um, it was this interesting cross section of that. I see these reverberations uh, throughout my career of being sort of drawn to true crime stories and, and these things, but it set me off on a path of becoming a filmmaker. And then I'll, you know, just to speed through, I went to NYU film school, met a bunch of great people and started to mostly get into editing. So for, so right out of, of school i was an editor for for many years um and documentaries um like catfish the original uh documentary that spawned uh, the mtv reality tv show um i also edited a a, a a a narrative film called martha marcy may marlene which was at sundance and did did very well and so i was kind of making my way um through the uh with one foot in documentaries which i just love putting together real stories and 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 solving the puzzle of you know we have a incredible amount of footage and how do we make it into something and then i i also enjoyed crafting stories with performances and actors and was living in both both zones you know up until very recently and um you know the sh 
you Providence uh, folks probably re remember Vinny Pazienza, who was oh, yeah. a Vinny boxer. Pazienza. Yeah. Uh, so I edited Bleed for this, which was a, a, a fictional version of his story starring Miles Teller and Aaron Eckhart. And that was one of my first kind of the first time I went to Providence was for that movie that we were, we were filming a boxing scene down at the, uh, is it the Dunkin' Donuts arena? What's the arena? Oh, yeah. Yep. yeah. You nailed it. Yeah. The, the Providence civic center and how the dunk after plenty of different renditions. That's right. That's right. So I've been, I was at the dunk. I've been at the dunk now a couple of times. I like the dunk. Uh, but the first time I was there was when we were filming the finale of, of bleed for this. Um, and then I'll just mention I, I the, the jinx was the other big kind of thing that that's that that like really solidified uh, my kind of love and appreciation for true crime stories. We'll get into Rhode Island in a bit here, but let's let's dive into your start in this industry, Zach. Sure. Um, you know, you had you obviously went to NYU Tisch School of Arts, one of the best in the nation. Um and then launched a, a pretty solid career from there. What were some of the things that you learned from your early education or your early experiences that, that kind of set you on that path? Good question. Uh, NYU was incredible, mostly because of like the people that I met there. The program was, uh, I think, a very, very solid program. But like it was it was all about, you know, a couple of the professors that I had, which were who were incredibly inspiring. And then some of the students that I, that I met, who I still work with to this day. Um, I was in school in 2000, 2002 to 2006. So coming up on 20 years, wow, making myself feel old, but, um, <laughs> <don't> you here. <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, I guess what I learned was you kind of come into NYU feeling very competitive with the, the people around you and, um, everybody wants to be a director and everybody wants going to be famous and all, all of these kind of things. And then I think what I learned about filmmaking was that it's a very collaborative medium and that you're all really helping each other. And, you know, one of the best semesters I ever had was having to make, I was in a team of four people and we each made five films. So it was the course of like 20 weeks or 20 you know, we were all, we were making basically a film a week, directing some, but, but then helping to crew on, helping to bring other people's visions to life. And I loved that. I, I, and I, and it made me totally switch up my whole focus, which was originally wanting to be a director and coming into really loving editing, really loving the relationship between a director and an editor and really liking to get my hands on the material itself and and work with somebody to 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 put it all together and i was yeah i just really appreciated all that and then to tee up our, our next part which i'm sure will's going to get into why the interest in true crime to start was that something that you had brought with you from maybe childhood or was that something developed in college or afterwards tell us about that arena that you played in and why that was so interesting to you I mean, true crime, I think, and I don't know when, when, when this sort of switch happened for me, but when somebody commits a crime, it, it changes their, the details of their life in a way where it makes everything about their life important. All of a sudden, you're holding up these facts and thinking, is this why they did it? Is this, is this what, made, what, what made them the way they are? So suddenly, 
you look at somebody's existence in a way that is like things are clues. It, it, it just turns up the, the drama on any situation. And I think from a storytelling perspective, it allows you to tell stories about other things. You got them in the door with the crime hook, but like it actually allows you to talk about a lot of interesting things that are more relatable. Most people don't go around committing horrible crimes, but we're all kind of intrigued by the people who do. And I think we can all learn something about life by looking at those sort of heightened um, stories. And I mean, the ones you worked on um, throughout your experience in your career, obviously you have the Jinx, the, RF, the RFK tapes, uh, Ballad of Billy Balls. It's a mouthful. Um, but then, of course, obviously Crime Town, which brings you to Providence. So, you know, how did you first off, like, how did you connect with your co-creator, Mark Smerling, um, for this project? And then why did why was Providence season one? Mark and I met. Um back in the days of catfish so we met in 2009 i think when um, mark and his partner at the time andrew jarecki came on to help henry juiced ariel shulman neve shulman and and myself finish the documentary catfish and so i you know i was the editor of that film and mark and i spent a great amount of time together in the edit room of catfish and we just really hit it off we, we both enjoy storytelling um in in similar ways and you know he's a total storytelling genius um and we had a great experience um working on catfish together and so andrew and and mark were, were also about to go off on the journey that would become the jinx and do something about robert durst and they brought me along on that journey so in i spent from 2011 to 2016 2015, I spent from 2011 to 2015 working very closely with Mark and Andrew on the Jinx, you know, not knowing, not knowing um, where it would go or what it was going to be and um, having just an incredible experience, obviously, watching that series have its own life and go on to win awards and have, you know, get, get, I go on to win awards and, and we, Mark and I were trying to figure out, you know, we knew we really liked working together and we were trying to figure out like, how do you follow that? How do you follow something that is, you know, how do you follow something that has done that, that well? I don't, it's hard for, it's hard to, uh, it's interesting to, to think about and talk about. Um, it's been a while. Um, anyway, so we were, we were uh, trying to figure it out and I knew Alex Bloomberg because he had come to, I had been on This American Life talking about that story of growing up in Narrowsburg with uh, Richard Castellano and the whole con that had happened. So that had been a This American Life episode. And I had kept in touch with Alex Bloomberg over the years. And so as we were finishing the jinx, I um, introduced Alex and Mark. And we had originally actually thought about doing um, an audio companion or somehow using some of the material that we had discovered on the jinx, um, some of the Robert Durst phone calls or something like that. And Alex said, you know, he didn't really want to do a DVD extra, something that was a bonus piece of material, but he was very intrigued by doing an audio story together, something that was original. And Mark had family in Providence and had met Buddy Cianci. I had never been to Providence before this 
And um, he suggested that we start looking into the Buddy Sciency story. And, and, you know, pretty soon that just the people that we started meeting and the, the doors that that opened up became Crime Town with Gimlet and Alex Bloomberg. Yeah. So let's dive into that a little bit more, too. You met sure. people, you basically had to identify what the story was. Obviously, you know, most people in the Northeast know the name Buddy Cianci, maybe not what he's been associated with or the crimes that he's committed or anything like that. But where do you start? Um, you know, we, you get to Providence, you try to identify the story and the right stakeholders. I mean, what's that process look like? Who do you have to talk to? Walk us through the creation of what came to be Crime Town. Sure, sure. Great question. Um, the, one of the first people we met was a guy named Bill Malinowski, who was a longtime Providence Journal reporter, crime reporter, who was working on a book at the time with Charles the Ghost Kennedy. So the first people that we met were Charles the Ghost Kennedy and Bill Malinowski. And we did an interview with Charles um, who is an incredible character um, and, an, and a, a really interesting guy. And he came to Mark's apartment at the time in Brooklyn. And I remember when I met him, you know, he's like an unassuming guy and he kind of walked in, he was very polite. Um, and we did this whole interview where he told us his whole life story about being a very high level drug dealer and um, having packs of wolves in his house in Providence. And um, he walked out of that interview kind of much different uh, seeming to me. And uh, it, it, it's so through Bill and Charles, then we kind of built this cast of characters and we started doing many, many more interviews with Tony Fiore and Brian Andrews, who had sort of like been this cat and mouse interesting pair of one was a criminal and one was the cop who had chased him. And then later in life, they had come together and kind of become friends. So we started just to meet at first, it's just individual characters and interviews, and it's not really clear how it's all going to fit together. We knew that buddy is going to be strung through um, this season. And we also knew that we were going to have these criminals and cops and, and obviously Raymond Patriarca as uh, one of the main characters of the story. And so we really start just in the beginning, just collecting material. Right. And so quick step backwards for the people that, you know, we have listeners mostly in New England and the Northeast, but also across the country. Can you give us a quick synopsis of what Crime Town is and the Providence aspect to it? Like season one, a quick summary. Yeah. So Crime Town is basically telling the story of a city through the crime and corruption. That was the concept of the show and that you could learn a lot from, from a place by weaving together all these different stories of uh, all these different crime stories. And season one tracks um, Buddy Cianci and Raymond Patriarca as the kind of a, a former, uh, Buddy Cianci was a former um, prosecutor turned uh, mayor turned criminal uh and raymond patriarca was kind of allegedly the the head of the new england mafia right um and so the the over the course of the season the power dynamic between those two dueling forces kind of goes back and forth and shifts and 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 kind of tracks through time 
So when you were creating this concept and you were gathering all these ideas, obviously it was helpful to have some living people, but a lot of it was also just through records and conversations because it was a past event. Um, how did you gain trust with the people that you were talking to, especially with such a taboo topic? That's a great question. I mean, I think with any story, it takes time to build trust. So we would do multiple interviews with people. We would have multiple meetings with potential subjects, trying to convince them that they should trust us to tell their story. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I think time is a big part of that. Um, there are, there were many people that decided not to speak to us in the end. Um, and then there were some people that we worked with for a long time to get them feeling very comfortable to, to begin to share stuff with us. I mean, it's a personal thing. You're asking people to tell their life story and to trust you enough that you're going to make them, you know, you're going to do it justice. And I think we always tried to not judge anyone's choices. Um, really, I think some of the magic of Primetown is that we're adding context to their choices. These are, this is what they were dealing with. And this is the way they went. And it's like presented in a way that's not ju judgmental. It was just, this is what they chose to do. And, and, and these were the consequences. And um, so I think it was a mixture of those things. It's also, it was the right time in a lot of ways to tell that story. People who get to be a certain age, you know, all the people we talked to is kind of, we're kind of out of the crime game and, they're ready to kind of talk about it. You know, they're, they're, they're a little on the older side and, and they're sort of thinking about their legacy maybe and thinking about, you know, their life and, and, and kind of, I felt this way about other stories too. You, you kind of come, there's, there's often a right time to tell a story. And, and we were really fortunate that, that it turned out to be the right time to tell the, the Providence story. I how much, oh yeah, go ahead, Will. I was going to say, how much time, can you explain like the timeline of, you know, from when, okay, Providence, that's going to be season one to a finished product? Um, so we, we, I would say it was over a year um, between when we started to like when it actually released, start, starts getting released. And even when it starts getting released, we're still working on later episodes. It wasn't the situation where we had the whole thing finished and then doled the episodes out. We were there like putting the finishing touches on the episode that was about to be released, often running up and trying to get a last minute interview from somebody. I remember, yeah, there were several interviews that came in very late. Um, and so, yeah, it was about a year before we started uh, putting episodes out and then we ended up doing like 25 episodes or something so you think about they, they were coming out almost every week i think it was a three on one off schedule or something like that so we were it was a considerable amount of time let's dive we'll, we'll tie the bow on the podcast in a, a couple of minutes here but talk about trust you know as you mentioned before a big part of that, which Will dug up a nice quote on, was from the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard. They were evaluating your work and said basically that the partnership that you guys had to develop with the, the you being the podcaster and the local traditional you know, print media journalists was groundbreaking, right? They said the beginning of a new local media format, quote unquote, 
that's a big part of it, right? And this is in a time, you know, around 2016 where podcasting really has not even been close to what it is now. So that was another trust exercise too that you had to build. Take us through how you, you know, got these guys like Bill Malinowski from Projo and, and many other local journalists, I would imagine. What did it take to get them on board and to trust you guys with their wealth of information? This wouldn't happen without Bill Malinowski. I, I can't even understate as uh, I, I can't over understand. Overstate. I think either one. He was a huge part. I mean, he was, Bill was an incredibly huge part of, of gaining trust, both with subjects, like I mentioned, Charles and a couple other people and with the Providence journal. He had only recently retired from the Providence journal when we started meeting with him and working with him. And he, between him and Mike Stanton, who is another former Projo reporter, and Dan Barry, like they really helped us gain trust with the Providence Journal. And the Providence Journal was a huge part of, was a huge resource for us. Um, we, we were, at the time, we had this incredible website and they were giving us photos for the website. We were also using some of their archives, their print archives. They also, um, helped us with giving us other reporters to talk to. They were like an invaluable service um, for us. And we tried, we, we also then replicated that in season two in Detroit. Um, so it was, you know, something that we're really inspired by. I grew up in a local newspaper. My parents owned a newspaper. I have a, like a huge soft spot in my heart for newspapers. And, you know, I think we see a in, interesting crossover potential between podcasts and newspapers, which, which I still would like to do more about. Right. And on the topic of media in this day and age, in your opinion, do you think crime town, especially crime town Providence, could that ever be a show? Uh, what kind of show, like a TV show? Yeah. Netflix TV, anything like that. Could, could this yeah. concept play in any other, you know, film media areas, do you think? Well, we were hoping to turn and still hope to turn Crime Town into a TV show, um, a, a narrative TV show. But I think, I mean, I think in terms of media now, there's, there's you know, uh, we're in an interesting time, I think, and, and there's, a, there's possibilities for all sorts of different things. I mean, I think it's fascinating to me that, you know, the New York Times has a video series on Hulu. Like, that's fascinating to me. Wouldn't have seen that, I think. And that, that feels very recent to me. That feels very current. And I, I'm very intrigued by these sort of interesting crossovers that you see happening on the news side, mostly on the news side, but I think there's also opportunities. So I think you're right. I think all that stuff is, is possible and is probably where things are, are headed. You know, like it isn't so much that things exist in their own lanes anymore. There's much more crossover between newspapers, having podcasts, having TV shows, having and not being just newspapers anymore and not being just podcasts anymore, being these like kind of global publishing entities playing in all sorts of different mediums. Well, if it becomes a video series or it becomes some kind of media content, you have two Rhode Island guys that will be either host, stunt doubles, <laughs> extras, whatever you need. Hello. What stunts can we do? I don't yeah. know. About, yeah, I can't really do shit. Anything. I mean, just to be in a scene, that'd be pretty cool. But my question for you to, uh, well, two questions to finish up the Rhode Island and Crime Town. The first, 
similar to stay on the topic of the video series. Obviously, you wanted to be an actor um, way back when. If this became a series or a show <laughs> and you were obviously doing the editing and the producing, but you could also be a star in the show, who would you be? That's oh, a what a question. What a question. Um, man. Oh, I mean, I, would, I, I think I'd say Buddy for myself. I think that'd be a cool. We're <laughs> 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 going right to like Buddy. Hitting wow. Buddy Fancy, right? Wow. Got similarities, a little dark-haired <laughs> Italian, a little short. <laughs> I think I'm going like uh, a young shepherd fairy graffitiing the sign, uh, graffitiing right Buddy Cianci's uh, campaign sign. There we go. And then my <laughs> second question: Obviously, you spent over a year in Providence, and you know you had to have eaten while in Providence, especially oh. stuff. So, what were your go-to food spots while? in Providence or in the state? Oh my gosh. There's probably too many of them, right? Oh, I mean, I, we, we ate, I'm going to blank on names of restaurants, but Federal Hill, we would, we had a lot of food, obviously on Federal Hill. We, we were, we were based up there, but if you tell me what's the name of that pizza place uh, up there, that's not on the main drag, but it's like gotta be Caserta, right? Yeah. Caserta. Yeah. Caserta loved the Caserta pizza. Um, oh gosh! So you definitely then, got your fix of Italian, though. Yo, so much Italian. And what's the? There's like a grocery store, Italian grocery store that has incredible sandwiches. Benda. Um, right? Benda. Benda. Yeah. Yeah. Between those two places, I definitely we, we ate a lot up there for sure. <laughs> that works. Yep. That's a, we'll, we'll give you a pass. It's been a while. So <laughs> yeah, not great. I know. I, I should have, I should have, uh, I I'm going to get back. I'm going to follow up with you guys. I'm going to send some check. That's the, check perfect. You guys, do you guys tweet? Do you guys tweet? We'll tweet some oh, yeah. of my recommendations oh, yeah. out. There we go. There we go. We'll, I mean, you can't go wrong with anything on federal Hill either. Yeah. We'll give uh, you a nice big retweet of an endorsements here. Here's the SPs, uh, you know, top few restaurants at federal Hill. Yeah. Yeah. Thank um, you. Let's go into your film careers. We've got about, you know, 10 minutes or so. Sure. Uh, first of all, you know, all this work you've done with HBO, very cool stuff. Um, obviously, you know, you're the mind behind the jinx about Robert Durst, uh, Catfish, and, and so many others. Uh, you've won Emmys. First of all, I mean, you have a Wikipedia article. So is that not the biggest flex of all time? Like, yeah, I've got a Wikipedia, like all this. Uh, <laughs> here's my filmography. How cool is that? First of all, An IMDb, yeah. Yeah, I am deep. Uh, That's sick. I love how earnest this is. Yes, I I guess you're right. I like that. I hadn't thought about it like that uh, in a little while. I I've been incredibly fortunate just to be involved with stories and and to be part of telling stories that uh, people have, have have gotten to see. Uh, it's like the biggest compliment um, is just to be able to continually churn out work that people are talking about and, and to be a part of like the conversation, the cultural conversation. And I think that's really what I'm in, inspired by and, and just feel so fortunate to be able to tell stories for a living. I mean, it is a dream. Um, at, at times it feels hard because it's, it's hard work to, to tell stories, you know, that are, that, that seems simple, but it's just, it's, it is a lot of fun. So with the, with HBO, right, that's a major network and talk about dreams. 
that's got to be one at the top of the list for folks in your industry. What's that like working with them? What were the things that, you know, stuck out to you um, as far as maybe you weren't prepared for, or maybe just were really cool to experience? Oh, they're just, HBO is their dream for filmmakers to work with. They are just so supportive and, and they're also just great storytellers. Like they give notes. It's not the kind of cliche thing where like the notes from the network come back and they're terrible. And you're like, Oh, what are these people thinking? They're just, they're just everybody over at HBO is they're great storytellers and they're super supportive and they just want to make the best thing. Um, the first time that I worked with them was, was on the jinx and it was a dream come true. And that was sort of a situation where we, we weren't sure that it was going to end up at HBO when we were making it. And then to have it end up there and then to have such an incredible experience with them was a, was a dream. And your dream became an award-winning dream. Uh, follow-up question to that is where do your Emmys live? There we go. Oh, there we are. <laughs> Right there. there we go. Right there. Right there. Put so that up. We'll yeah, put for that up. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, did you have any mentors in your career that you looked up to, helped you guide to a specific, uh, specific place, or even just, hey, you know, I'm having a tough time with this. Can you offer any advice? Were there anyone in, uh, in particular that you'd like to shout out? At NYU, uh, my mentor was Sam Pollard, who was an editing, my, the editing professor there, one of the great editing professors there. He's Spike Lee's editor. He cut just incredible documentaries like Four Little Girls, which is just a heartbreaking Spike Lee documentary, and um, When the Levees Broke. And now he's gone on to be a really great director. He made a film last year called MLK FBI, which is all about the FBI's surveillance of Martin Luther King. He's always been somebody that um, has been incredibly supportive and helpful to me in my um, editing career. And then I would say, you know, my relationship with Mark Smerling and Andrew Jarecki is oftentimes, you know, it's we're obviously close collaborators, but they're also people that I would say were have, have been mentors to me in the past. I mean, capturing the Freedmans as a documentary is an is a masterpiece, and they are two of the best storytellers I know. And, and it's been a lot of fun to be on these adventures with them. So Zach, you're doing a lot of great work. Uh, you've got your fingers dipped in a lot of different things. Uh, what are some of the things you're working on now and what are, uh, what's, what's next? If give us however much you can share, um, sure. you know, on, on what's in the pipeline for ZSP media. Yeah. So we just launched our first show with, um, Spotify, my uh, Gimlet slash Spotify It's called not past it. It's a history show. It's weekly. So every week, the host, who's Simone Polanin, who's an absolute rock star on the mic, um, takes a, an event from history and sort of unpacks why we're not past it and it's still relevant. So it's given me the opportunity to, it's the first thing I've done that is not serialized, where every episode is a different story, which has its challenges because you're starting from scratch every week, you know, but it also has its benefits in that like I can tell stories that I wouldn't necessarily want to spend four years on, but I'm happy to spend four weeks on. Uh, we got a great episode coming up of all about Zsa Zsa Gabor uh, slapping the cop. It's probably a little too young for you guys, but in like 1990, <laughs> this former Hollywood actress slapped a police officer Oh. Uh, across the face in, in Beverly Hills. And, and they had a whole trial. She sort of milked it for 
all the publicity it was worth. And so I just got out of an edit for that episode, which is hilarious. We're trying to use just the courtroom transcripts and testimony to tell the story. So you got the cop on the stand and she's on the stand and she's got this incredible accent. Anyway, so I'm doing, I'm doing the not past it thing. And then I also have a few uh, true crime uh, series in the works. One about the heist of a very expensive and famous diamond in London, which has been really fun to work on. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Uh, we're closing out on time. One quick question before we let you go. Um, and then of course the floor is yours to, uh, you know, promote where people can find you, but with we're in 2021, obviously it's very, you know, difficult in specific injuries, industries to break out, especially it's very, you know, just crowded or there's just a lot of people competing. What advice do you have someone, you know, whether it's in the film industry or just trying to chase their dreams to help them persevere and, uh, you know, succeed in whatever they want to accomplish. I would say that like, you just got to start doing it. Like, just like you guys, you started this podcast. Like I I'm so inspired by stories like that. Like now you guys are podcasters. Nobody has to be the gating factor for you. You nowadays, like, yeah, it's crowded, but it's also accessible to anybody. You can get a microphone, you can get a camera, you can get whatever you, you don't even need a camera. You can use your phone, you know? So there's no excuse if you want to do something, not to just go do it. And a lot of people will tell you no, but if you just do it, they were wrong. I love it. That's very simple and great advice. Um, Zach Stewart Pontier, ladies and gentlemen, Zach, uh, if you want to plug away on your social media handles or anything where our listeners can engage with your content floor is yours. You've got a couple of seconds here. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm Mr. Zach SP on Twitter and Zach SP on Instagram. So yeah, come say hi. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank Good luck guys. with everything. We hope to keep in touch and we'll talk to you soon. It was Thank a pleasure you. being here. Thank you for having me. And that was Zachary Stewart Pontier, ZSP, two-time Emmy winner, founder, creator, host of Crime Town Providence. Great, great interview. I mean, that guy danced with the devil, you know, talking to the, you know, old school people of the Providence mob. And there was a lot of digging between that too. It wasn't just like, hey, here's the information that's present and, you know, just report on it. Like he had to have some deep conversations and- Obviously, it's not as prominent as it used to be, but I mean, we joked about that when we were deciding on like guests, like in our very beginning, first couple weeks of this podcast. And we're like, oh, you know, what if we like talk to uh, Tillinghast's son and stuff? It's like, do we yeah. really want to open? Do we really want to open up that can of worms? Like that's like jury, even Jerry Tillinghast. I mean, that's yeah. So, I mean, cool, cool stuff. And I mean, just from that podcast itself, how much unraveled after that um i mean they might make a tv series that's always you know possibly in the works they also there was a play about the prince of providence which was buddy cianci they made a musical on it one of the episodes it was a bonus episode in the podcast you know had some of the musical numbers and it was honestly like not too shabby it was it was pretty interesting there's a book on it as well um and there's like a whole deep line of connection into it so cool to uh uncover some rhode island history in that as well Great stuff all around. Thank you again to Zach for joining the show. Before we get into the rest of the podcast, I wanna to talk to you about one of our sponsors, Goalie Apple Cider Vinegar Gummies. Um, the big thing right now is a lot of health kicks, get your vitamins, you know, 
especially with allergies and common colds coming up. Everyone's like vitamins, vitamins, vitamins. And you also want to lose that quarantine uh, 15 that you gained as well. Well, if you look online, a lot of the easy ways to lose weight or just get better immune system and better digestion are apple cider vinegar shots. You try them and you're wildly disappointed. I mean, they taste awful. Too much of it is actually very harmful. It could corrode your teeth and people aren't seeing results. Well, our friends over at Gully, Goli have created a solution for that with the apple cider vinegar gummies. They're a convenient and delicious way to incorporate that apple cider vinegar into your daily routine. Taste the apple, not the vinegar. And we're gonna get you a discount on that as well. So if you go to goalie.com, that's G-O-L-I.com, use the code the BBB Pod and you get 10% off your order. That's T-H-E-B-B-B-P-O-D for 10% off your order. We use it for our daily routine. We love it. They taste amazing. Go check it out too. That's goalie.com. Use the code the BBB Pod. On to crypto. Are we calling this crypto crash 2.0? Are we calling it crypto crash like 97? Um, at the time we're recording this Bitcoin way down, all other coins way down. Dogecoin's like less than 20 cents to this point. Um, I actually was really curious what even set this off. And it has a lot to do with China <laughs> who banned financial firms from actively aiding in mining cryptocurrency and Bitcoin automatically goes from like 45,000 bucks it was creeping down pretty steadily to under 40 and then pff, like gone. Like today it just went, or for this, the beginning part of this week, I should say it went from around the 40 mark down under 30, now back up to 32 after hours currently. Um, how bloody this is yeah. bad. looking at the board. Um, I guess the weekly question is, is like, now do the elites have to get back in crypto? That's well, the thing. I think the market's being manipulated by the elites right now. You know, I think they're the ones controlling this drop to allow them just to obviously sell high, buy back low, and then just make more money. Um, and I had a few, I talked to a few people today, today about it because again, the more we talk about it, the less I understand it. And even further so, it's like, why is it dipping? I have no freaking idea. But no, I mean, people are saying that, like I mentioned, the markets are being manipulated, that you should just hold or buy low now and let it, you know, cruise through whatever in the summer, in the fall, it's going to bounce back with new initiatives. Other people are saying it's like crypto is kind of becoming a joke now with all of these, you know, these shit coins that we discussed it, like the market's becoming oversaturated, um, a whole combination of shit. And I just do not know. Like, I mean, again, with any stock, you're going to have your highs and lows. And obviously this is not a stock, but it emulates the trading services of it. It's like what to even do. Like, I mean, again, if we're talking about crypto, going back to uh, last week's interview with Kyle Seabeth, it's like, what is that property worth now? Yeah. You know, if he didn't trade out, like he's probably kicking himself in the ass because it's like, fuck, like my, my holdings of this property, say if it was a million dollars, is now down 50% to 500,000. Like That's actually a good point. That's something we should ask Kyle at some point. Like if this deal hasn't been finalized, he just lost a lot of money. Like he just lost 20% on that fucking house. Like that's crazy. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. 
Like, is that, <sighs> why, why is the appetite for risk so high with everybody, including real estate people now? I mean, if I'm a real estate agent or if I'm anyone that's accepting Dogecoin or any, or like a bar that accepts Bitcoin in Poland, right? I want money. I want guaranteed money in my pocket. Like how, why on earth am I going to allow consumers to get away with paying less than the product I just sold them or the service or good I just gave them? Like that, that just still doesn't make any sense to me. And I don't think as a, as a society, we're ready for that yet. No. Maybe more progressive societies like in Europe. Sure. You know, I, I, I'm maybe, but I mean, to me, if I'm a small business owner or if I'm rendering a service or giving someone a good, why on earth would I change? Like, yeah, sure. You can make more money, but wouldn't you want the guaranteed revenue in your pocket? That just baffles me. It's all a gamble and different countries are adopting cryptocurrency. And I don't know if that helps or hinders it. Um, people are obviously holding it and not moving it. Like, does that help or hinder it? Like, again, I mean, we're going to have to bring on a crypto expert even more to like help break it down like crypto for idiots. Um, because I just don't know. Yeah. I'm not really sure about, you know, and maybe what I said is true. Like maybe some people are finding uh, that that is true or just absolutely not true. Maybe it, it is a form of gambling. Honestly, that makes sense. It's like, you know, okay. I sold something for, I sold a car for 10 grand. Right. Um, but it's going to be in Dogecoin. So I sold it for, you know, let's just say 50, 50 K Dogecoin. And now 50 K Dogecoin is going to be worth, a lot less than what it was before, right? So it's it's a trade-off you take. I guess it really is gambling. That's what, that's what I'm getting from business this week is it, crypto's gambling. Crypto is a, a gamified, a much more gamified version of the stock market. I kind of like that. Can we settle with that definition for this show? I, I mean, that's what I've like kind of considered it too. It's like, it, okay. it, it is such a, it's a, it is just as unknown as if your favorite team is going to win or lose a ball game tomorrow. Yeah. You know, it's like if I'm a Mets fan and Jacob DeGrom's on there, it's like, yeah, I think they're going to win, but the offense could not do shit and just fall. And although De Gar um, Jacob DeGrom's so, uh, such a powerhouse, such a dominant force, like it could also lose that too. It's such a gamble. So I have, you know, I have no idea. Who does? And we'll find that crypto expert at some point. Um, let's transition now. And we're going to do it with a, an analogy. Borrowed with gratitude from our friend Zaid Mani. Who has had the worst month? Bitcoin or Ben Simmons <laughs> on the Philadelphia 76ers? And I'll tell you what, this is not as easy as you think it is. Well, Bitcoin's had a pretty bad month. Well, if you're saying month, I'm gonna to have to go with Ben Simmons because Bitcoin is so kind of because Bitcoin's kind of had a bad couple of days in a stretch. Ben Simmons, I mean, his stock is fucking low. He <laughs> went from lower. Can you get? He went Bitcoin? from MVP candidate, defensive of the defensive player of the year candidate, to not making a single field goal in the fourth quarter of three straight games. Not still now the conversation comes back up. Is he a lefty or a righty? Like, why the hell is that still a conversation piece? It's like, you should know which side you're more comfortable shooting with and which side you're better. And then pretty much defeating the process. Like the process is gone. And what do you trade for him? 
is I read I read a Bleacher Report article the other day, right after the Sixers lost. They're like, if the Sixers want to trade Ben Simmons, here are the logical, you know, players that they'll trade for. I heard fucking names, Bradley B. Uh, no, sorry, not Bradley B. I was right. CJ McCollum, Kristaps Porzingis, um, Drew Holiday, like all of these names. I'm like, I would take any of those players over Ben Simmons right oh, now. Yeah, yeah, easily. Is Ben Simmons a great defender? Yes. He has no clutch. He has no clutchness and he can't shoot. He went 30% at the feel at the free throw line. So bad. He's that so is worse bad. than Shaq. And Shaq was like still a dominant fucking player. I know. It was at the point where the Hawks were fouling. They were um they were fouling Ben Simmons. Shaq with Ben Simmons. It yeah. was Shaq of Simmons. That's what it, it was, was in the third. It wasn't even in the fourth quarter. It was the third quarter, and they were hacking Ben Simmons because they had fouls to give, and he missed 90% of them. That is so embarrassing. You, like, honestly, I say this with my whole heart. I think you could have made a field goal. I, I really do. The fact that he was underneath the rim in such a close game and oh dished it off. Like, you're telling me you can't just put it up? That's embarrassing, man. That is embarrassing. I and listen, give credit where credit is due. The Hawks have been a dominant force. You know, the Hawks are surprising a lot of people. They are doing very well. But Ben Simmons, man, that whole team, I mean, Joel Embiid wasn't hot. Doc Rivers didn't coach a good game. But Ben Simmons, I mean, he, he put a dagger in Philadelphia fans' hearts and – his time, I think, there is done. You mentioned China about Bitcoin. I think he's going to the Shanghai freaking sharks because he his time is done. He has no value. Destination. Yes, be a great destination for him. I just looked it up at the beginning of June. Bitcoin was hanging out in the thirty six nine fifteen region, and it lost around you know at the closing bell today thirteen percent total. Not too bad. Considering that Ben Simmons has gone, his stock has gone down far greater than 13%. Like yeah. you can argue probably 50%. Yeah. Maybe even more. I don't know. Yeah, no, more. Because you have a guy that was supposed to win defensive player of the year. They had talked about him for MVP in a few conversations. I'm like, oh my God. He was having a good year, but it doesn't matter. I mean, again, the comparison I'm making it to it right now, it's like Julius Randle had such an incredible year, right? All NBA. He was in some MVP talks. He received some votes. He did not have the strongest playoff performances. He was definitely streaky. He started off very slow. People were not burning his jersey saying, fuck the Knicks, fuck Julius Randle. He had a bad stretch. Ben Simmons is now at the point where it's like, you were this coveted first number one pick. You won rookie of the year. You're beginning all of this buzz. The process is finally complete. The Sixers are the number one seed, and you let them down. Not only in this series, but the last series, too. He wasn't really a strong performer, and it's like, wow, you can't even fucking shoot. No, you can't even sucks. shoot. At least Julius Randle, yeah, he wasn't his best performance, but he was making plays in the fourth quarter. You did not score a single basket in three straight games in the fourth quarter. That is a joke. How can you be an MVP when you cannot do that? Yeah, and he's clearly allergic to the basket. I heard on another podcast today, if you didn't have to get the ball in the basket, Ben Simmons would be, would the, be best the best player. Best time. player. 
he sucks. He's so bad. But the question becomes like now I'm looking at the salary and they're the Sixers own 33 million next year, 35 the year after, 37 the year after that. And then who's gonna take that? 25. He is owed 40 million dollars. 40 million. There is not a team on this earth that would take that. Not one. I I actually know one. Uh, who? What? I think if anything the Oklahoma City Thunder would oh. trade Ben Simmons. I mean, sorry, they would trade Kemba Walker for Ben Simmons and multiple picks, right? So they move on from they move on from Kemba. They take on Ben Simmons. He they somehow from their two weeks with Kemba Walker. <laughs> well, no, I mean it's the same thing that they did with you know Kelly Oubre. They flipped him yeah. for a pick and like. And going back to the original point, they're going to rejuvenate his career like they did with CP3, who had negative trade value when he was on the Rockets. And then all of a sudden, some team is going to fucking pucker up and pay for him. And the OKC Thunder are going to get 40 more picks out of it. I, I can see that. But are the Sixers even in a spot where they take Kemba? It's a better point guard than Ben. I mean, anybody is. At this Joel point. Embiid is your guy, not not Ben Simmons. Oh, no shit. I mean, I don't even think that was a question even while Simmons was good. So he had Embiid that was far better than him. He brought more value to the team, right? That's what I think. That's crazy. $177 million over five years. Who the hell did this? That's yeah. Um, all right, let's move on here. NBA playoffs are down to the last four We've got the Suns who are red hot playing the Clippers. And, you know, that's in the Western Conference, obviously. Devin Booker's playing out of his mind. On the other side, you have the five-seed Hawks who bounced our poor New York Knicks. And I'm, I'm a little fine with that now that they've made it this far because, oh, the Knicks lost to an Eastern Conference, you know, potential champion. Um, the Hawks are taking on the Milwaukee Bucks who stunned the Nets. Um, I said the Hawks would give the Nets problems. So I think they're certainly going to give the Bucks some problems here. Um, I'll just give you my prediction. I think we might see a Suns and Atlanta Hawks final. That's I'm going to go on record and say that I think that. Yeah. Um, on the West, I mean, you know, with Kawhi out and CP3 out, I still think the Suns have the advantage. If you get both of them back, at the same time, it'll be tough. I'm I'm pulling for the Suns. I want the Suns to win personally. I'm I'm all for them winning the entire thing. Um, great for Booker. Great for CP3. Finally gets his ring. Um, a lot of good players on that squad. On the East, I mean, it's a toss up. I mean, the Hawks are on. Un, they're unstoppable right now. Um, I mean, I'm also rooting for Giannis too. I mean, he is getting a lot of flack and stuff, and like no one wants to go to Milwaukee. I hope they pull out. I think that'll be a closer series than the Clippers Suns. Um, give me Bucks and seven, and then Suns Bucks will do if that's the case. Wow. Yeah, I think the Suns are going to come out on top of the West. I, this this is going to be another great series in the East. I think. I think it's going to be like you know, I think it'll be more competitively balanced, honestly, than the than the Nets and the Bucks were. To be totally honest with you, I really think that they're just they're, they both run out of steam because they were hard. I mean, they beat the Sixers and the Nets. Those are hard teams, man. Yeah. Those are real yeah. hard teams to beat. Um, we can talk about the Olympics once the roster is set, but we have some pretty big names that are hopping in. I mean, Harden's in. 
KD is in, Chris Middleton's in. Um, Tatum, Kevin Love. Tatum's going to um, play in Beal. Tatum, the whole big thing is Tatum playing with Beal. Is Beal going to be a Celtic eventually? Who knows? Uh, you know, that's probably a step in the right direction for Celtics fans. Though. Yeah, I mean, so far it's looking like a sharp 12-man roster. Uh, they'll finalize some pieces um, in the coming days. But, I mean, expect USA to win this single-handedly. Uh, no ifs, hey, ands, or no. buts about it. No. You never this know, but, I mean – Starting to get good pieces like that, it helps. It helps. I mean, it's no LeBron. It's no Melo. It's no Steph. I would love to have Melo on that squad just for the nostalgia. I hope they shoot him an invite because I'd rather him than like a fucking Harrison Barnes or Marcus Smart. Like get Melo another. He has what? Three gold medals? Give him four. Give him yeah, four. I agree. I agree. Just give it to him. That guy who's like the leading scorer in USA history. Let him let him go out on top while he's still, while he's still back. But Do we know if – is Pop coaching this time around? Pop's coaching, yeah. Okay. I, I feel like every year it's either Pop or Coach K. Yeah, I think Coach K stepped down. Uh, I would hope so. He's yeah. like almost 80, right? I mean, Pop's not young. but Gosh. Yeah, it's not like they're getting younger. Yeah. It's an old-ass team. They got Dre, Dre Green. Uh, they got K-Love. Yeah, Draymond. But they've got some yeah, – they do have young. I mean, again, the USA, though, you're not playing more than 20 minutes, so. No, exactly. And then, you know, that's someone that's a wagon in this league and, you know, they should run away with it on paper. And as we close out balls, um, speaking of teams that should just run away with their competitions, the Euros are going on right now. It's the Euro Championship. Um, France is back for a vengeance. They look good again. I don't yeah. even know who's on the team. You, you've you been following a little bit more than I have for soccer, but I, I'm pretty sure they they have, like, the usual suspects on that team. Like, they're bringing back um, – a lot of the guys that won the world cup with them in 2018. Um, I don't know. Is Mbappe on the team still? <laughs> I don't even know. I'm not sure. I just know France is a wagon. Oh, Benzema. Oh yeah. shit. Yeah. Ben Benzema is like incredible. They're, they're going to kick everybody's ass that they should kick everyone's ass. That is. Yeah. Uh, man. Yeah. Mbappe is back. Oh, he is playing. Yeah. Oh, they're going to, they're, they're going to dominate. That's incredible. Um, let's go to Positivity Corner to close things out. Joey Votto this week. That's exciting stuff. This is a really good story. Let's hear it. You could tell it. I don't have the full one on top of me. My apologies. I just know <laughs> that. Uh, well, okay. I can I can have live for, for the moment. But Joey Votto, um, he was in a game and he got ejected. And there was a little girl who I'm pulling up her information right now. Um, first name was Abigail. Yeah, first name was Abigail. That was her favorite player. I believe it was one of her first Reds game as well. Um, she was devastated to not be able to see her player for the very first time. He was ejected right in the first in inning for arguing balls and strikes. Her mom tweeted a picture saying, when it's your first MLB game and your favorite player of all time gets thrown out of the game, we love you, Joey. And it's her daughter crying. So, so sad. So the Reds ended up giving a ball to Joey Votto, who signed it. Um, I'm so sorry I didn't play the entire game, signed the ball, then invited her to the next day, um, gave her, got the chance to meet Joey Votto, took a picture, signed it, made up well for it. Um, great stuff all around. I mean, that is just a great, great feel-good story. And Joey Votto just stays winning. 
yeah, it was pretty sad. She she was crying. She chilled out over some popcorn, and then Va- they told Vado, and he's like, "Oh shit! Like I should probably do something." And then he said, "I'm sorry, I didn't play the entire game." And he got suspended afterwards because he said something bad. Yeah. Him, but um, PR 101. Nice work, Joey Vado. Um, yeah, he made up for it to Abigail Courtney. Um, hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Zach Stewart Pontier. Of course. Uh, remember to hit the follow button on Spotify, leave us a review on Apple podcasts, hit that follow button on Twitter and Instagram as well. Thanks for listening. And that will do it for this week. That's Will and I'm Jake. So long folks. Take it easy. Mm -hmm.